0: This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. What is the why that drives today's most successful business leaders? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shopeia dives deeper with entrepreneurs on their life's work, legacy, and the greater meaning of it all. Find the Road to Why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal... This is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. What is the state of the conflict in Syria? Is there a terrorist resurgence going on? And what's the Trump administration's strategy? Welcome to Foreign Edition. I'm Mary Kissel with the Wall Street Journal editorial board, broadcasting to you from News Corporation headquarters here in Midtown Manhattan. And I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast one of our favorite guests, Jennifer Caffarella, the Director of Intelligence Planning at the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, Jennifer is the real deal. She's been briefing... U.S. government contacts, intelligence agencies, uh, media people like me on places like Syria. She's proficient in Arabic. She is the expert. Jennifer, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's start by giving listeners an update on the podcast that you and I did several months ago, a kind of a, a state of play, a tour of who is fighting in Syria and where they are. And let's start With Bashar al-Assad's forces, the Syrian government forces, has Assad regained control of most of the country, some of the country? Where are those troops located?
1: Absolutely. So the question of whether Assad actually can control much of anything is still a very live question. He remains highly reliant on the military forces that Iran provides to fight on his behalf, Uh, in addition to reliant on Russian air power and some elements of Russian ground power. Now, the regime, with Russian and Iranian support, has managed to achieve a couple notable wins this year, consolidating control over the capital of Damascus by forcing the surrender of the besieged rebel enclave in eastern Ghouta and then repeating that success in southwestern Syria by forcing the surrender of largely moderate opposition groups, most of whom were components of the rebel group known as the Southern Front, forcing their surrender in the province of Dara bordering Jordan, which was the birthplace of the original 2011 revolution. So some significant gains for Assad thanks to the military support that Russia and Iran provide, but a very open question about how he, how long he can actually secure that terrain with the forces that he has in the face of the potential for groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS to conduct a long-term insurgency within that terrain that Assad has ostensibly recaptured. Well,
0: it, it's remarkable that this civil war, which, which has been going on now, I think, more than seven years that within that time period that he was just now only able to recapture part of the capital. I think that says a lot. Uh, Jennifer, you you talked about forces opposing him. Uh, These are Sunni jihadist groups, al-Qaeda offshoots and remnants of the Islamic State. Um, Where are they located? Uh, Do they have centers of power?
1: Sure. So Assad's strategy and the strategy of his backers thus far has been to prioritized destroying the moderate elements of the opposition that were willing to negotiate with Assad and therefore reflected a political challenge. Those groups had territorial strongholds, which included the areas in southwestern Syria that I mentioned. Assad preferred to face a long-term threat from jihadists because he calculates that he can hold the West hostage to his survival if the only military threat to him is jihadi. Now, this poses a difficult challenge for both Assad and U.S. policy moving forward, because the jihadist groups are not as territorial based at this phase in the war.
0: Meaning that they've yeah. melted back into the local populations.
1: Meaning, meaning that they've, yes, they've, they've melted back and they've They've transitioned to return to an insurgency, to deprioritize the fight for terrain and focus instead on the very long war. Now, there's one exception to that, which is, of course, the remaining zone of control that is outside of Assad's control in western Syria, um, which is the province of Idlib, which is a primary al-Qaeda stronghold. And we do see al-Qaeda involved in governing elements of that terrain, in addition to using it as a military support base.
0: It seems like Assad has dumped a lot of the opposition forces that he conquered, particularly in the southwest, as you said, Dara and Kunetra provinces, that he's dumped a lot of those people into Idlib. Is Idlib then the next uh, showdown between the regime and the opposition forces? Assad certainly
1: hopes to reconquer Idlib and is open about his desire to do so, to include his willingness to fight against the Turks, which are present in northwestern Syria, including on the borders of this rebels' control zone in Idlib province. However, the question right now is whether Russia and Iran will support a military operation, a ground operation against Idlib province. We've seen the start of some Russian airstrikes, it seems, on Idlib, in a clear attempt to apply military pressure on that zone and potentially on the Turks. But it's an open question whether they will support a ground campaign or whether what Russia and Iran actually simply want is to force the Turkish president Erdogan to grant them certain kinds of concessions in Syria, to include economic concessions, to enable them to gain access to reconstruction funds and other resources, or whether they actually, those actors, Russia and Iran, do want to fight it out for Idlib. So, they will face Turkish resistance.
0: So a lot of players here, just to recap, you've got the Syrian government forces of Bashar Assad who have trouble holding terrain unless they're backed by Russian and Iranian, and I might add Iranian-backed Lebanese Hezbollah forces. But they've made great gains. But now you're bringing in the Turks, Jennifer. This is another interesting player. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, intervened in northern Syria, also northern Iraq, within these last weeks and months uh, to create a kind of border zone so that uh, Kurdish militants Uh, who are against the Erdogan government, who want to uh, start their own country. And that's another complicated situation, of course. The U.S. has backed uh, the Kurds who have fought alongside us for many, many decades. But let's set that aside and just talk about Turkey for a moment. So, uh, Jennifer, do you think that Erdogan will do anything more than just keep that border zone area? Is that his interest in Syria right now? Or, you know, when you look at the map... Uh, Idlib province is quite a ways in uh, to, uh, to Syria. It's southwest of Aleppo. It's just north of Hama. Um, you know, how far could Turkish troops press into Syria?
1: It's a great question. And what we actually see Erdogan doing is more than opposing our local partner, the YPG. Erdogan is actually investing in building a local Syrian rebel proxy force that is both governing and still has military strength to continue to oppose the Assad regime, which is actually one of Erdogan's longstanding objectives in Syria. He deprioritized fighting Assad in order to focus on the YPG, but that doesn't mean he actually has abandoned his policy goals of continuing to resist Assad.
0: The YPG, the Kurdish group that is linked to the PKK inside Turkey, that is considered a terror group. That's a Kurdish group that wants independence.
1: Yes, Absolutely. Um, And so Erdogan has some options, actually, for how to continue to resist Assad. One step he has already taken is to deploy something like a dozen military positions, forward uh, bases, into Idlib province to be on the front line against pro-regime forces to potentially block any ground operation. So he can involve his forces directly. He also can continue to arm and fund and support rebel and al-Qaeda linked forces in Idlib province that would resist a potential regime attack.
0: And then, of course, there's us, the, the American forces. Uh, the last I checked, we were east of the Euphrates River, uh, protecting uh, oil fields, uh, energy supplies there. Uh, alongside the Syrian Democratic Forces that are mostly a Kurdish force. They have some Arab fighters. Uh, and we were also up in the northeastern part of the country. Um, has that uh, changed, Jennifer? Uh, and and how significant is the U.S. presence? I mean, if you're looking at the map of Syria, are we in like 20 percent of the country, 15 um, you know, percent? What's your estimate?
1: We're, we're sitting on a significant piece of terrain, and I think part of the value of the terrain that we are operating in is actually that it hosts most of Syria's oil and natural gas resources, which, of course, are a very valuable commodity, not only to the Assad regime, but to his backers, Russia and Iran, which, as I mentioned, want to extract as much revenue and resources from Syria as they can.
0: It's also a place where we block... Iran's land bridge, so-called land bridge, from Tehran to the Mediterranean. Because if we were to withdraw from that part of Syria or to, say, abandon the TAMF uh, base that we have established near the, uh, the Jordanian border, I believe, um, would, that would just open up Iran's, uh, shall we say, that would allow Iran to, to effectively conquer a wide swath of the Levant.
1: Partially. Now, we are present at Tanf, as you mentioned, and that blocks one of the cross-border routes between Syria and Iraq. Um, we're also present and could disrupt a second route farther east, mm-hmm. which goes through the border crossings of Abu Kamal and Kaim on the Iraqi side. But we're not actually actively blocking the Iranians because we don't actually seem to have set a policy objective to counter Iran on the ground inside of Syria. Our forces remain limited in their focus to counter ISIS operations. So Iran does actually already have some access to this kind of cross-border support route. But of course, as you mentioned, it would be a lot worse if the U.S. were
0: not present. We are causing some disruption. And there's the rub. We're talking about the state of play in Syria with the Institute for the Study of Wars, Jennifer Caffarella. And you're listening to Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. Drive time, gym time, anytime. Podcasts from The Wall Street Journal. Check out all our shows at wsj.com podcasts. That's wsj.com podcasts. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Welcome back to Foreign Edition. Mary Kissel here in New York with Jennifer Caffarella of the Institute for the Study of War in Washington. And we are talking about Syria. And just before the break, Jennifer, you raised the question of U.S. policy. And I'm so glad that you did, because it is the biggest question in my mind in the Middle East outside of U.S. policy toward Iran. What is the Trump administration's stated goal in Syria?
1: Well, it's actually a more difficult question to answer than it should be. The administration has stated a number of goals in Syria, but has only taken action on essentially one of them, which is the counter-ISIS fight. The administration, beyond the defeat of ISIS, has stated objectives that include denying Iran access to Syria as a support zone, Um, and an ability in a supply route to Lebanese Hezbollah. We have also stated our objectives against al-Qaeda inside of Syria and for the departure of the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad, from power. But we have taken very little actual concrete steps to accomplish any of those wider goals and have been instead continuing to focus... In a limited sense, on the tactical military defeat of remaining ISIS forces in southeastern Syria. Yeah,
0: I hate to call him president because he's he's really just a butcher. Um, that's that's a more appropriate word for him. Uh, I know you're an analyst, Jennifer, so let me do the editorializing. He's a butcher. Um, now, uh, the, our presence in the eastern part of Syria. As you say, the goal was to kill the terrorists. Okay. Um, we've taken out the caliphate. Uh, that's good in Iraq and in Syria. And yet there were reports this week, Jennifer, that the, the number of ISIS fighters remains the same. Um, are they simply just, have they simply melted back into the populations of Syria and Iraq where the U.S. is not present? Yeah, this question
1: gets to the heart of how we actually define the ISIS threat and therefore our strategy to defeat it. The American campaign against ISIS has defined the threat as the ISIS control over territory. So our goal is to defeat the physical ISIS caliphate. We have not set as our goal to destroy the entire ISIS fighting force, which opened ourselves up to ISIS adaptation and a decision by ISIS actually to abandon the ground war, cede to us that terrain so that they can make us feel like we have won that fight while they regroup and prepare for a next round.
0: Now, one strategy that President Trump has employed is a strategy of diplomacy, Uh, notably in July 2017. Uh, The U.S. signed a so-called de-escalation agreement with Russia and Jordan uh, to de-escalate the fighting in Syria's southwest, the Dara and Kunetra provinces that we we spoke of, Uh, and yet uh, Russia and uh, Syria have broken that agreement openly, and we've done nothing, (laughs) absolutely nothing. Um, doesn't that just crush any leverage uh, that we might have uh, over these actors and make us less attractive to the kind of moderate Sunnis that we would want to fight alongside us in Syria?
1: It sure does. And I therefore have a hard time actually regarding it as diplomacy. That was a surrender. We're in the business of actually surrendering or ceding Syria to the Russians and the Iranians. And for that reason... We lost the opportunity to support moderate groups that are willing to negotiate a peace. And we therefore indirectly fueled the morphing of what was originally a pro-democracy uprising into an international jihad, because the groups that are strengthened in the absence of American engagement in this theater are the jihadist groups, and they are settled in for a very long-term fight.
0: Yes, they are, and the numbers are staggering. And also ISIS's broader geographic reach. I mean, it's not just in the Middle East now. It's infected uh, Africa, it's infected Central Asia, it's infected the Philippines and other parts of Southeast Asia. We'll set that aside for another day. Uh, Jennifer, what does this mean then for U.S. interests in the Middle East and the security of our allies, uh, in particular Israel? If we continue down this path where we keep a minimal presence east of the Euphrates River and we cede the rest of the country to Iran, Russia and Syria?
1: I actually don't think that this status quo will be able to endure much longer to include, quite frankly, our presence in the east. Everybody else in Syria wants us out to include actually our NATO ally, Turkey which would love to see us abandon our relationship with that Kurdish local partner, the YPG. And the Russians, the Iranians, and Assad are setting conditions potentially to take military action to expel the U.S. from eastern Syria. So I expect, actually, we are going to face the prospect of further escalation, which could unfortunately actually compel us to withdraw if we're not ready to do what is necessary to defend the terrain on which we operate,
0: but we did have one uh, challenge to that U.S. position several months ago when a Russian mercenary forces, several hundred of them, tried to storm a U.S. position, and and the Trump administration crushed them. In fact, the president ordered the military to do whatever they needed to be done, and we just wiped out several hundred Russians. In one fell swoop, it was an enormous display of American military power. And it raised the question to me, Jennifer, as to you know why the reticence here? Because if you looked at the actual capability of the U.S. military versus these foes, uh, it's just overwhelming. Um, I, I know that uh, our friend uh, Fred Kagan of the American Enterprise Institute, he has this great phrase. Uh, he calls it the coalition of the oppressive poor, uh, Iran, Russia, and Syria. So why, why are we so afraid?
1: Well, I don't think we are afraid. And you raise a very good point, which is that we absolutely can defend ourselves. However, the U.S. is in Syria in a rather limited force posture. We do have thousands of special operators there, but it still is a limited force posture. We are not holding terrain. We are supporting our local partner. And so it actually is a difficult possibility that we would have to defend against a multi-pronged offensive, not a one specific target Mm. that we could defend, but say a tribal uprising on behalf of the regime funded and enabled by Russian special forces and covert Iranian elements. Who are
0: interoperable, correct?
1: Who are interoperable and could attempt to undermine the security from within in the areas that we operate. Or, God forbid, you could see the Iranians decide to start using uh, very successful explosive devices known as EFPs or Mm. explosively formed penetrators to target U.S. forces in the east. So they can't really win a direct one on one fight against us, but they absolutely could undermine security in the areas where we operate, which could actually cause our local partner, that YPG force, to lose the will to fight alongside us if they don't think we are. We are willing to stay in Syria in the long term anyway, which President Trump has signaled we maybe aren't.
0: Well, I I sense some alarm bells going off in Washington, and I noted this week Secretary of State Mike Pompeo held a a call with Iraqi President Haider Abadi, current Iraqi president, of course, outgoing, likely. We don't know yet. Uh, The coalition is still yet to be formed. And the Kurdish Prime Minister Barzani um, emphasizing the need for... Uh, a stable, unified Iraqi government that takes into account the needs of all Iraqi citizens, Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish, and emphasizing the importance of the U.S. relationship with Baghdad. Um, Small thing. It was a small press release. Uh, Nobody really noticed it. But when it came across the transom into my inbox, uh, I was heartened to see Pompeo taking an interest, Jennifer, because that's something that I think Tillerson just really outsourced to others in the State Department. You know, maybe there's some strategizing going on here within the national security team at State and the White House and the Pentagon that we're just not not uh, hearing publicly yet.
1: I was similarly heartened by the readout of that call, and I think we do actually perhaps have a new moment of opportunity in Iraq after the start of the reimposition of sanctions on Iran which actually has given possibly outgoing Iraqi Prime Minister Haider Haider al-Abadi more leverage in the negotiations over the formation of the next Iraqi government. Abadi had been drifting somewhat into a possible coalition with the Iranian proxy leader Hadi al-Amri, whose coalition unfortunately won the second most seats in the Iraqi parliament. Abadi was seemingly drifting in his direction, but has since broken back away from Hadi al-Amri after the imposition of sanctions, because in part, Prime Minister Abadi is attempting to remain compliant with the U.S. sanctions, actually, and not take action to protect Iranian assets or interests. And so this is potentially an opportunity, actually, for us to use our leverage and potentially our economic leverage to keep Abadi on the right side of this and potentially give him a bit of a boost in those government formation negotiations.
0: Well, let's end on a rare, upbeat note for this podcast. On behalf of Jennifer Caffarella at the Institute for the Study of War, thanks for coming on. I'm Mary Kissel with the Wall Street Journal editorial board. We'll be back with you next week.